welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction hello and welcome to this talc talk which is part of talc module 10 which is all about using our consultation skills in complex conversations. My name's Avril Danchek. I'm a GP in Manchester. Today we're going to be talking about the skills which are needed when we want to talk to patients about potential domestic abuse. And today's discussion, we're going to be joined by Dr Claire Ronalds to talk about how issues of abuse might arise in consultations and the skills we need to ask about possible abuse to respond appropriately and helpfully. Welcome, Claire. So, hello. Hi, Avril. Claire, can you tell us a bit about your roles and experiences in working with people who've been subject to domestic abuse? Yeah, I've been a GP in Manchester for many years, GP lecturer, uh, GP trainer, and latterly, the last decade, um, the IRIS GP domestic abuse lead for Manchester. Thank you, Claire. Can you tell us what IRIS stands for? Yeah, IRIS is the Identification Referral to Improve Safety. It's a general practice-based domestic abuse training and specialist domestic abuse service. We started it in Manchester in 2012, following the publication of Prof Fedder and his team's research work. And you spoke to Prof in the last podcast. Yes, there's a very interesting accompanying podcast about the background to asking about domestic abuse in consultations. I think to begin with, it's very important to emphasise that all the skills in module 10, which is for complex conversations, build on the basic skills of the talc modules 1 to 7. So clinicians who are familiar with and practising all those skills will find them very helpful when patients talk with us about abuse. But we're going to focus down today on the skills needed to ask about abuse and the skills we need to respond appropriately if we hear about abuse during a consultation. Now, to some extent, this is focusing on module three, which is skills for effective information gathering. Um, We might suspect abuse is a factor if people have a history of chronic abdominal, gynae or sexual health problems, if they have mental health or drug or alcohol problems or even unexplained injuries. But sometimes when we ask patients about their own perspectives and ideas about how their problems are arising, we get hints and clues that abuse might be present or difficulties at home or something. So, Claire, how can we begin to introduce questions to ask about abuse without it seeming really tactless and clunky? You're right, Avril. It's so important to listen and be attentive to the patient, but also thinking about the possibility of domestic abuse. Asking about abuse is a clinical inquiry. You need to have a low threshold for asking, but it's not a routine tick box screening question for every consultation. And firstly, you can only ask if it's safe to do so. You have to make sure that you see the patient on their own. You can't ask them if there's anyone else, like a family member, the partner or a friend or a child with them. And don't use a family member or a child as an interpreter, you should always use an independent uh, translation service if a, if a translator is needed. Can I just pick up on that? Because you said this is something you can do only if it's safe to do so. Can you just spell out why it's not safe to do it with somebody else in the room? 
Because the risk is that the information that you've been asking about domestic abuse gets back to the perpetrator and that might make the victim more at risk of being harmed. Thank you. So it's really important to only do it when you see them on their own. That's very helpful to know. Now, what kind of questions can lead into this discussion then? It's really important to start with an open question. So how are things at home? Or reflect back if you've already heard them talking about stress to say you mentioned stress at home. So you're using their own words. But then it's essential to follow it up with a very specific question about domestic abuse. We don't use the word domestic abuse as such. Um, now, examples of things like, are you having problems with your partner, husband, or anyone at home? Has someone hurt you? Does anyone try to control you or what you do? Another approach is to link the question to their presenting symptoms. So examples would be, some women have these symptoms when they're at risk of abuse. Are you afraid of anyone at home? Might that be happening to you? Or sometimes people with chronic pain have a lot of pain or tension in their lives that's reflected in their bodies. Are you ever afraid of or humiliated or hurt by anyone? Sometimes people with depression have experienced major problems in their life, such as living in an abusive relationship. Might this be happening to you? So you're linking whatever it is that they're coming in with as a health problem. And it's a huge range of clinical problems that relate to domestic abuse um, to asking that question, to making that link about coercive control, that somebody's humiliating them, intimidating them, controlling what they do. Okay, that's that's really helpful. And uh, I'd like to pick that up and take it a bit forward. But I'd also like to say, if somebody isn't subject to abuse, do they feel offended if you ask them about that? Yeah. Very rarely. We've... Right. we've, we've maybe twice in the 10 years can I think of GPs coming back to me saying the patient was offended and my immediate response would be I wonder if there's something going on because the usual resonating reply is no that's not the problem yeah but and I'm then really you know. yeah and then you know where you're at okay I think it's very reassuring for people to know that and um, you've talked about linking it to symptoms are there some open questions that are a more generic way to bring this subject up um I think it's really important that you find a form of words that, you, that work for you that you can um, use in, in routine consultations. I would ask, is there anyone harming or controlling you? Are you safe at home? Two very simple questions, but um, it brings, it's like opening a door into an inner sanctum, into another room that the patient's never told anybody about before, never shared before. Um, and they may have suffered abuse for years and years and years, and they won't tell about it or speak about it until you specifically ask. And again, you've mentioned before about not using the word abuse with patients because some people don't recognise that what's happening is domestic abuse. So this is where your question, something like, do you feel safe at home, which doesn't specify that it's an abusive relationship, it just opens the the question or puts the question on the table for somebody to deal with in whichever way they want. That, that sounds really helpful. So these are some kind of easy ways in, and we've talked about how concerns might arise. Is there a good time to do this in the consultation? Is there a specific moment when it's good to ask about this? 
There isn't a specific time to ask about it. I mean, you should be sensitized by what you see in the records as a clue. You need to be sensitized by the presenting problem. You need to have that high index of clinical suspicion. Um, as Prof said, domestic abuse is very common in general practice attendees. Um, you need a low threshold for asking. But building that rapport and empathy with a patient enables you to ask following the cues that they offer you. Uh, if there aren't any cues, then you look at the health problems and you explain the link to them between the health problem, can be anything, can be cardiac, hypertension, chest pain, that link between presenting problems and domestic abuse, and then you ask about it. Okay, now I know we've already touched on there are times when it's best not to pe ask people about abuse, particularly if they're not on their own. So um, I'm thinking now, in a face-to-face -face consultation, people might be on their own. Uh, if they're not on their own, have you got any suggestions about how you make it safer to ask by perhaps trying to engineer them to be by themselves? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, COVID has made it much easier, of course, to, to see patients on their own, um, to following all COVID precautions. But there are other ways. And one of the important things that we do in our domestic abuse training is we train the whole practice, that all the staff are trained. And often you need the help of other people. Um, but there are ways of saying, I need to examine you. And you ask the accompanying person, the partner who may be the perpetrator. But of course, it could be a family member who's a perpetrator. It isn't, uh, it isn't just one relationship necessarily. And um, so there are ways of, of, of saying, I need to see you on your own for an examination. You could ask the um, perpetrator to go and collect a prescription, to get something from reception. I've in the past asked GP registrars to say to the perpetrator, oh, while you're here, Mr. So-and-so, could I just see you for a blood pressure check? Um, there are ways of getting people on their own. Sometimes with the staff's help, you need to organize another, you need to make another appointment and organize another consultation. And that's very helpful. Um, I think a lot of times now people are consulting on the telephone or even video. Do you have any thoughts about how to think about those situations where, where you've got fewer clues really about who's around and you're not quite sure who's there. Yeah, there are some steps that you take before asking about domestic abuse during telephone or video consultations. First, you need to check the records to make sure that there isn't a safeguarding or domestic abuse code that's flagged up on the records. And then at the beginning of the call, you need to check who else is in the house and who else is in the room with the patient. Um, you should request that they don't have their speakerphone on. And if they're on a video call, can they use headphones? And then prior to talking about domestic abuse, you need to ask the patient if it's safe to do so. And just to say to them, I'm going to ask you, um, is it safe to talk? Simply reply saying yes or no. So if there is somebody else in the room, um, that's all they're going to hear is a yes or no and not know what's being asked. If the answer is it's not safe to talk, so no, it's not safe to talk, then you can't ask about domestic abuse. Um, you can ask them for a time when you could speak on the phone. If that's not possible to do safely, then you need to arrange to see them in surgery face to face on their own. And that's going to be a much easier situation, isn't it? Now, I know that one of the things that comes up a lot in training situations, both with people who are still in training and with experienced clinicians, 
is they feel a bit inhibited about asking about abuse because they feel it's a kind of a can of worms that they won't know what to do or that if somebody mentions abuse that will make the consultation very very long and most clinicians feel themselves to be under quite significant time pressure these days so what are your thoughts about this about opening this sort of can of worms as people sometimes see it well, I understand the feeling about being under time pressure. However, responding to a disclosure, however, responding to disclosure only takes a few seconds to say, thank you for telling me, I believe you. It's not your fault. You're not to blame. I know someone you can talk to. That's very interesting. Um... What is the effect of saying to people something like, thank you for telling me, you know, I know it's not your fault. What, what is the effect on the patient when you do that? We've carried out several RS evaluations and talked to the service users and got their feedback. What's impressed me has been that they remember the response when they tell somebody about domestic abuse. It isn't being asked the question that matters so much as the positive response. So asking the question does matter, but it's actually the positive response that the GPs give that means so much to the patients. It's really important. You keep mentioning GPs, but of course, this kind of abuse is mentioned to lots of other people. It can be mentioned to a practice nurse or a midwife or a paramedic or a physician's assistant. So are you saying that really it's this positive response of saying, Thank you for telling me. I hear you. I understand. I believe you. It's not your fault. That that is the, almost the, the crux of the, um, the response that makes it effective. Yeah, it's really it's, it's that response that's really important. And you're absolutely right. My saying GPs is a shorthand for any clinical staff within the practice who are asking about domestic abuse. And it should be everybody who can do that, who's trained to do that. Um, okay. So, yeah. so, so at this point... Maybe somebody's revealed that they're not safe at home or that somebody's hitting them or controlling them or something, and you've acknowledged that. Um, what are clinicians supposed to do then? Are they supposed to fix this? Are they supposed to make it all better? What, what are kind of steps should they be taking at that point? What's really important is to refer them to a specialist domestic abuse service. Preferably to make a direct referral, if you can. Much better than giving them a phone number and saying, ring this number. Now, for Irish practices, that's really easy because the Irish practitioners can say, I know someone you can talk to. He'll see you here in the practice in safety and in confidence. And it's the domestic abuse specialist who's the person who will support the patient. He'll carry that can of worms, help them sort things out. But for non-IRS practices, it's really important that every practice has their local domestic abuse specialist service information easily accessible in the practice. Now, whether that's on the practice intranet, whether it's in a safeguarding folder electronically or in paper version, whether it's the post on the wall that should be in front of you in every consulting room, every clinical space, uh, whether it should be in the locum pack, it's really important that you know where to find that information because often practicing the barriers to doing things properly is that you can't quite remember where the, where the phone number is or uh, the referral form is, and then you're not going to bother because life is too busy. Mm. So really important to get practice organization worked out. So you've got the information to hand. 
I understand that. That makes a lot of sense. And so each individual practitioner really needs to make a mental note and say, do I know where to find this information? Wherever it happens to be in different places, we'll organise that differently. And that will give them confidence as well. I just want to slightly clarify what you meant by a direct referral rather than, say, giving somebody a phone number and saying, well, we have a specialist practitioner here. You can ring them on this number. What exactly do you mean by direct referral? Okay, it's better to make a referral, so to send a referral to your local service so that you are referring the, the patient um, as opposed to giving them a phone number and saying, ring this number, because that's another a barrier for them. That means they have to tell their story again to somebody um, and get up the courage to make that phone call. Uh, it's it's a, an additional barrier. So better if you can do a direct referral. So that Get means it. that the domestic abuse practitioner, which might be an Irish practitioner or whatever, will then take responsibility for contacting the patient in an appropriate way. And we'll talk about how to do that a bit later on in the podcast. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But they will also, certainly with the Irish service, they will also then feed back information to the practitioner, to the practice to say, um, we've made contact with this patient. And this is what happened. Okay. I think, for many clinicians, it would be very reassuring to know that it's not their job to fix the, the problem and it's not their job to explore all the details and all the ins and outs, but that there is specialist help available. And I think one of the other very important things is that if you hear some of these accounts, it can be distressing or difficult or, or worrying how important it is for the practitioner, the clinician, to talk to their colleagues about this and get some support. Well, what do you think about that? I agree. I think it's really important. And again, you talked about it in the last podcast. It's really important to recognise um, the impact that talking about domestic abuse can have for yourself. Um, it's important to talk to colleagues, to have a trusting confidant within the confidant within the practice, to speak to your practice safeguarding lead. I know not every practice has somebody in the practice every day that you can talk to. But you have to identify people that you can talk to. It's really good to make links to your local organisation. So with the RS service, the RS domestic abuse workers will support and discuss any concerns with practitioners and offer support. And yes, there are other ways of doing it, such as balance group. Um, that, but it's really important that you're supported. I think that's really interesting. And I know from my own experience, when I've heard patients sometimes saying quite alarming things and uh, wondering how to handle that, that when you talk to people who have experience and practice in this area, they can often explain the situation to you or help you understand the dynamics of it in a way that can make it less worrying and less fearful. So I definitely think that thing about linking to colleagues and talking about this openly is very important. Which brings me on to something else about the response, because we've, we've talked here about a referral, but are there ways for clinicians to assess the level of risk for patients? How, how would they do that in a consultation? It's really important to do a brief risk assessment. You need to check that the patient is safe to go home. It's like other clinical situations. It's like having a patient in, in the consulting room. When they come in, They've been booked in with, with possible chest infection. When you look at them, they're grey, sweaty in the middle of having a heart attack. So you need to shift what, you, what you're doing. It rarely happens, but you do need to just do those safety checks. So you need to ask the patient what's been threatened. Are there children in the household and what's threatened? 
are things getting worse? So about the frequency, severity and what's happened. And then ask them, are they safe to go home today? Vast majority of the time, patients are safe to go home and you go with what they say. If they say they're not safe to go home, you believe them. And then you support them to call the police or you call the police who will come and take them to somewhere to a place of safety. It doesn't happen often, it's a rare event, but it's just being aware and you need to do that, that brief risk assessment. I think that question, is it safe for you to go home, is such an easy one to ask. And it's reassuring to hear from you that the patient's assessment of that is a, is a reasonable one to go with, that you're not called upon to make that call. It's them who says, well, no, I think it'll be fine, actually. Or actually, I'm telling you about it today because absolutely I'm too scared to go home, in which case you do something else. So I think that's also quite reassuring for clinicians who are worried about taking on the, as they see it, the burden of handling abuse, because in a sense, patients are good at managing their own risk. They've been doing that before they tell us, haven't they? That's right. Absolutely right. But they will be living with the risk. Yeah. They? So there are some higher risk indicators. You mentioned that sometimes there are things of higher risk. What, what do you think are things that might be a bit sort of red flags, as it were? Well, we use a mnemonic called SPECS, which is a reminder of high risk situations. Um, so the first one, S, is separation. And separation is a high risk time when people are thinking of leaving or have just left that increases the risk to them. So although long term leaving is a good thing for some people to do in the short term, it actually increases the risk. Pregnancy is a high risk situation. Domestic abuse often starts or escalates during pregnancy in the perinatal period. If things are escalating, if the perpetrator has made threats to kill, for example, if the perpetrator has a weapon in the house, if they tell you that the perpetrator has killed a pet, these are high risk things. Um, you have to take into account cultural issues, sensitivities, isolation, language problems, diversity, barriers. Stalking is another high risk behavior. So that's the first of the, the, of the S's. So anybody's being stalked is high risk. Strangulation. Sometimes the patients will tell you that the perpetrator has put their hands around the, their neck or something else around their neck. It's a high risk behavior. It should be taken seriously. And the third and the last one is sexual assault. And when asking about sexual assault, we ask whether anybody's done or asked you to do something of a sexual nature that's made you feel uncomfortable in the past or recently. So that again is high risk behavior on people being sexually assaulted. Those are really interesting things. And uh, I know um, strangulation uh, really should be seen as uh, attempted murder in a way isn't it if you're trying to strangle somebody you're really that's a very very dangerous thing to do to someone even if it doesn't leave many marks afterwards and I think we need to recognize the the risks of those kinds of behaviors um let, let's turn a bit now to the kind of skills about explanation and planning and, and making sure that the planning of the care of, of somebody in this situation is tailored to their own specific needs 
Now, a lot of times I can sort of mentally hear clinicians saying, well, this sounds like a terrible situation. Why don't you just leave? Or, you know, why don't you go somewhere else? Why do you stay with this person? Um, so tell us what kind of approach would be more appropriate, because I think there can be some problems with that kind of approach. You're right. It's sometimes you have your own thought bubble of, why don't you just go? But it's remembering that leaving is high risk and that separation may increase the risk to them. So please don't, um, people listening, please don't tell patients to leave. It's really important to individualize the care. Um, it's really important to refer them to a specialist service and to recognize that specialty in that the domestic abuse specialists will do the risk assessment. They will undertake safety planning. They will support the patient to look at their options. Um, and that might include making a plan about housing, legal action, uh, education, work. Um, it just depends on their individual circumstance. And that's their, that's their job. That's what they will do. Domestic abuse includes honor-based violence uh, or honor-based abuse, uh, forced marriage. It occurs in all diverse groups in society. And it's really important to individualize their care. Sometimes patients don't want to leave and then the domestic abuse services will support them in whatever way is appropriate. The other thing I just want to say is that it's really important not to make an assumption about who to ask and who to offer referral to. Because we all have our own mindset about who domestic abuse happens to, but it happens across the board in all sectors of society. Um, one of the examples for us is about age often domestic abuse is perceived as being young women. It's both women and men, although predominantly women are more severe for women. In our area, one of our patients was an 80 year old woman and the GP offered her referral to the domestic abuse service where she was seen and she decided after decades of abuse to leave her abusive husband, which she did so successfully. And the GP later said to me that that was one of the best medical experiences of her life. I think that really brings across what a transformative thing that can be, that uh, when people are enabled to talk about what's really happening to them between closed doors and between intimate partners, that you can not only just open the door into understanding that process, but perhaps open a door that leads them into a very different part of their life and a, a very different opportunity to live life in a, in a more safe and enjoyable and healthy way. So I think that's a very good example of, of why we need to be careful to think about this across the board, as you say. So if somebody does disclose abuse and perhaps they do want some referral, what kinds of things can clinicians do which will help that process of referral to go nice and smoothly and effectively for both parties? What's really important is to check the referral information that you're giving. How can the patient be contacted safely? And the only person who can decide that is the patient. So they have to tell you what's safe, what phone number, when they might be called, or whether or not it's not even safe to contact them by phone. And sometimes contact has to be by other means. So sometimes via the practice, sometimes booking another appointment when you're going to get the specialist worker to see them. And not necessarily sometimes it's through a trusted other person. 
You need to ask whether there are children or grandchildren in the household. What age are they? What about vulnerable adults? Are there other vulnerable adults in the household? And is the victim themselves a vulnerable adult? And then that may trigger you to be thinking about safeguarding responsibilities. Sometimes patients don't want to be referred and we will go along with them. It's almost a collusion because they're worried about the children being taken into care. It's really important not to do that. It's really important to help the patient understand the impact that domestic abuse has on children, a lifetime effect for them of living in domestic abuse. So it's really important to work collaboratively with them and then try and help refer them on to an agency who will support them. I think that point you made about the children is, is very important because I've often heard patients say things like, um, oh, the children don't know it's happening or it never happens when the children are around and that kind of thing. But actually the adverse child events studies and so on do show that living in an abusive household, even if the child isn't directly abused themselves, has a very long-term effect on people's mental and physical health, doesn't it? It has a lasting impact on people's uh, both physical health and their educational development and their well-being. Uh, and if you talk to people who suffered living in a household with domestic abuse as a child, um, we have a, I have a colleague age 60 who will talk very coherently about the impact that every time she hears a slap on the desk, uh, it triggers her back to childhood abuse. It stays with people for a lifetime and affects their development. Mm. So I think that's that's very important. Um, we've mentioned before about trying to make a referral safe and confidential, so making sure that contact details are appropriate and that telephone numbers are safe, for example. Can you say something about... Um, your relationship as a clinician with other family members? Well, confidentiality is really important. Um, you should not, you must not talk to other family members, to the perpetrator. And you have to bear in mind that sometimes staff in the practice are related to uh, the family and they must also be aware of respecting, um, preserving confidentiality. Sometimes GPs feel that they know the patients well, they know the families well, they have a role in their community. It is really, uh, sorry, it is essential that you don't act as a mediator between the patient and the family. Okay. Um, why do you say that? What's the, what are the risks there? Because the risk is of greater harm to the patient. That's if the perpetrator thinks you're kind of taking sides or interfering or something. Because breaching the confidentiality may escalate the violence or the abuse within the home. Um, we've had examples with honour-based abuse where because of a breach of confidentiality, it puts the patients at risk really important not to do so really important that you protect their confidentiality that, that's really interesting and also it reinforces this importance of having both a practice-wide understanding about abuse but also having colleagues that you can talk to about difficult situations so that you take those discussions to a safe place not not to somewhere in the community 
Um, you've mentioned quite rightly that some patients may not want to leave or they may not even want referral at this moment and they may come back to somebody else at a later date wanting to a referral. But are there some kinds of situations where a referral to a domestic abuse services would kind of override their wishes? You know, would there be some concerns that a clinician could have that might make them say, actually, the risk is so great, I'm going to do something anyway? There are occasions, rarely, but there are occasions when patients at such high risk um, or children are at risk that you have to override um, and the safeguarding responsibility overrides the patient's wishes. Much better to work collaboratively, much better to get the patient's understanding that you're trying to help them and their children. Um, but there are times in high-risk situations. But the important thing in that situation, so if somebody's at immediate risk, again, that's easy. You're going to call the police, keep them in the surgery, police will come. It's other situations where you're worried about risk you're worried about uh, whether you've got enough of a detailed risk assessment, you need to be talking to the specialists, you need to be talking to colleagues. So you're sharing somebody else's expertise, talk to the safeguarding lead, to talk to your area safeguarding lead to get some support about what to do. And then there are there is guidance about when GPs are allowed to breach confidentiality. Okay, I think that's very helpful because like everything else in primary care, the answer to that question always is going to begin with the words, it depends. It, it's all going to depend on the very specific nature of the situation, isn't it? And this is very much in keeping with the ideas that we put across in the TALC training modules four and five, which are about explanations and planning of personalised care. And we've talked quite a lot about how we need to um, flex the care to be specifically as to what is needed by that particular patient. Um, and I, I wondered if you could say a bit more about disclosure as a as a process rather than as a kind of single event. Mm. We've talked about asking as though um, you ask once. Now, most of the time when you ask, you'll get a resonating, no, that's not the problem. And that's fine. Uh, sometimes when you ask, you get the disclosure. Excellent. Sometimes when you ask, you're just not sure that somebody gives you an answer and it leaves you wondering, I'm not sure if I quite believe that. And I haven't, I don't feel we've got to the core of it. And I think you should use your gut instincts and your intuition about what's being said to you and record that you've asked in the records and then record to ask again so that you're making a note to yourself or to your colleagues, or it might be the practice nurse to say, ask again. Um, because it takes patience sometimes uh, time to reflect about what you've asked um, and to decide to have the courage to come and talk about it um, and that's a process and it might not be you and the patients will sometimes say I've known you for 20 years I couldn't possibly talk to them about it I mean, the GP might say, I've known for 20 years that she's being abused, but they've never managed to have a conversation about it. And she may choose to come and see somebody else in the practice that, that uh, she feels less uh, less ashamed or, or less worried about talking to them about it. They're more accessible. It, people often make a decision about who they want to talk to about which situation, isn't it? And it could easily be the other way, too, is that somebody they've met a few times might ask them, but they might think... I won't talk to this person. I'll go and talk to that GP who I've known for a long time and I, I've developed a trusting relationship with. 
Let's have a think then about the recording, uh, which is part of the consultation as well, really, and, and what, what you're going to write in the records. So what kind of things, how can the records help this and help our, our colleagues and other clinicians who might see the patient subsequently? Yeah, in Iris, we have a prompt, which is a HARP template, and that helps remind us of asking about Iris, but it also helps in recording. The RCGP has produced national guidance updated in 2021 about how to record domestic abuse, both for the victim, the perpetrator and children in the household. Um, so well worth having a look at those. It's important to make a record. It's important to keep uh, to have brief notes. It's important to use uh, the patient's word verbatim. It's also important not to write too much. It can be uh, a disadvantage sometimes to write detail, which, which is not necessarily correct, um, either because of the way the patient's versed or because of how you've understood it. And it's important to code domestic abuse in the records so that it's flagged um, for other people to know and be aware that it's a risk factor. You mentioned the HARC template. Could you spell out what the, exactly that stands for? Yeah, HARC is just a mnemonic again to remind clinicians to ask about H is for humiliate, A is for afraid, so that's about the co coercive control, R stands for rape or sexual assault as a prompt, and K is for kick to remind about the physical assault. So these are the kind of aspects of abuse that you might ask for, um, and you might code, for example, HARC template positive or something like that as a guide to subsequent clinicians that something's cropped up in, in that consultation. Yes, if you if you tick any of the boxes in the HARC template um, and then save the template, it will automatically code the record with the new SNOMED codes uh, that... Uh, domestic abuse is a problem. Right, okay, that's very helpful. And I think this reinforces what we say in TALC Module 1, that looking at the records carefully before you even see the patient can be really important to highlight issues that might not otherwise show themselves very obviously. So mm. thank you very much for this focus on the specific consultation skills we need when we're thinking and talking about abuse with patients. So in summary, one of the things is don't be cautious about asking about abuse in the relevant situations. Use open questions, lead into it gently, respond to cues from patients. Um, make sure you know about your local services and make sure you listen to the companion talk, talk which in skills for talking about domestic abuse with Professor Jean Fader, in which we talk about the prevalence of abuse the definition and types of abuse that occur and some of the signs that can highlight potential abuse in the medical records when we're talking with patients. So, um, Claire, do you want to sum up? Yes, I, in summary, have a few prompts. Ask, respond, risk assess, refer and record offer a review and remember that disclosure is a process and then practice asking, practice your communication skills, practice asking with other colleagues until you get comfortable asking so it becomes part of your everyday consultations. And by asking, you may help that patient and their family to change their health journey and help them to better health and better social outcomes and help the children in the future.
I have, we collect feedback from our patients. And I just wanted to give you one quote from a patient who said, I had lots and lots of health issues. And every time I complained, they did blood tests and they said, you have nothing. Referral helped me with my depression. I'm sure of it. That makes a, a lot of sense. And I think a, a lot of clinicians will have a strong echo there about that, uh, doing lots of tests and finding nothing and having people continuing to consult and not perhaps asking what is now surely uh, in, in all of our minds a very obvious question to ask, which is, are they safe at home? And what is the context of what they're experiencing? So, Claire, we've talked about recording in the heart template and so on. Uh, and making sure that other colleagues know what's happened. Uh, are there some issues about confidentiality even in the notes? Because I know sometimes perpetrators get access to people's notes. What, what should we do about that? When you're thinking about domestic abuse, it's important that no person, no third party in the consultation can see the patient's records on the screen in case uh, there is domestic abuse in the background. It's also important when you're coding the records with domestic abuse or other safeguarding codes that that consultation is not visible. And there are methods for doing that. So EMIS, for example, has an online visibility button and all safeguarding domestic abuse information or other sensitive third party information should be redacted from um, patients access to their medical records by using the online visibility button or the equivalent in the other systems. So uh, this is quite a subtle thing, isn't it? Because there's a lot of pressure for people to have full access to their online records. But of course, you can't guarantee the confidentiality of that at home. You don't know who's looking at the computer or who's looking at somebody's phone, for example. So it is something that practitioners need to be aware of and to be quite proactive about in a way to actually say this is sensitive information I'm going to make sure that it isn't visible online or isn't on the front screen when somebody comes in to the room for example even yes it applies to more than domestic abuse but it's being aware that if you're printing out consultations and giving the patient a letter to take somewhere that you may be printing out information about domestic abuse that you don't want to share um, it's when you're doing referrals, the secretaries need to be aware and check what's being what's being sent out so that you're only sharing as necessary and that you use online visibility to block the online access. Thank you. I think that's really helpful to clarify what we mean by confidentiality in that situation. So thank you very much, Claire. And I'd like to draw people's attention that there will be another podcast in this series, which will be called something like perpetrators are our patients too because we're going to be thinking about some of the skills we're going to need to talk with perpetrators of abuse as well as those who suffer the outcomes so thank you very much Claire that's been a really interesting discussion thanks Avril this podcast was brought to you by NHS professional educators making training available to all